So how many of you know the name Tim O'Donnell? The name ring a bell with anybody? Got some triathlon people. Yeah, Tim O'Donnell's an American triathlete. I think I have a picture of him up there somewhere. So he has over 50 podium finishes, over 20 major wins at events all around the world. Tim O'Donnell is the peak of physical fitness. On a March 14th, a couple of years ago, he was two-thirds of the way through the bike portion of Challenge Miami when he started having chest pains and pain shooting down his left arm. His jaw actually started locking up. And he thought to himself, surely I'm not having a heart attack. As he leaned on his handlebars, he began reasoning, there's no way I'd be pushing 300-something watts on this bike if I were having a heart attack. And so he pushed through the pain. He ended up finishing 11th uh, with a time of 2 hours, 44 minutes, and 57 seconds. And after the race, he consulted with his wife, who's also a triathlete and a doctor, and decided that it would probably be best to go to the local emergency room, where it was discovered that Tim O'Donnell had an 80% blockage in his left descending artery, also known as the Widowmaker. The survival rate of a blocked, 80% blocked Widowmaker outside of the hospital is like 12%. His wife said we were this close to not having him around anymore. How does one of the fittest people on the planet have a heart attack at just 40 years of age? I think Tim O'Donnell's near-death experience just goes to show that someone can look good on the outside, but be blocked on the inside. You could be the picture of health on the outside, but this close to death on the inside. You know, heart health is vitally important, both physically and spiritually. Remember when a scribe came up to Jesus and asked him, what is the foremost commandment? Jesus responded, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe responds by saying, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all your heart, and with all understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus tells the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then, pay close attention to what is written in verses 35 and following. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said, the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Jesus is teaching the teachers. He did this on many occasions. He asked, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? 
Now, he's not directly referring to himself. What he's really saying or asking is, how can the scribe say that God's anointed king who is to come is the son of David? The Jews believed that this particular psalm referred to the coming Messiah. And in verse 1 of Psalm 110, David calls the Messiah his Lord. So Jesus, the master teacher, asked the question, if I am David's son, how can he address me as Lord? Jesus is not denying that the Messiah is the son of David, nor is he denying that he himself is the Messiah. He is saying that he is more than just the son of David. Not only is he David's son, he is David's Lord. So after addressing the topic of his identity, the teacher warns the crowd about the teachers. Beware, he says. Watch out for the teachers of the law. Why? Well, because they care more about status than they do the subject. They are more concerned about respect and honor than the education of the people. Appearances were paramount to these folks. They look religious. They appear to be spiritual. But you can look good on the outside, but be blocked on the inside. Jesus says, stay away from these teachers because ultimately they don't really care about you or the subject matter. All they care about is themselves. Don't pick your teachers based on charisma or appearance or attractiveness or speaking ability or stature. Instead, listen to those who have a heart for God and who live like it. The people were listening to teachers who had a serious heart problem. And Jesus came to educate the people on what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And according to our Lord, it all begins with love. It all begins with love, not law. It's not that law is unimportant. It just wasn't most important. And that's not me talking. That's Jesus. What are the two foremost commandments? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The foremost rule to follow is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second most important rule, if you will, is to live uh, as, as someone who loves their neighbor as themselves. And just for good measure, our Lord says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, everything that the prophets spoke of, everything they said, everything that the law is predicated upon is loving God and loving your neighbor. So, doesn't matter if you have right doctrine. Doesn't matter if you believe right things, teach right things, memorize the whole Bible, come to worship every Sunday. None of that matters if love is absent in your life. You want to talk about salvation issues in the Bible? This is one. This is a salvation issue. Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. These are the most important commandments. It's not me talking, that's Jesus. I don't care how right you are, how right you think you are, Love comes before law. Laws modify behavior. That's all they do. They're important, but they're empty without love, without a relationship. Don't leave here tonight saying, Chris said that law wasn't important, that following the commandments were not important. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying relationship sets the tone for the rule following. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Let me get the cart before the horse here. Love motivates law. In fact, love is fulfillment of the law. And I know this because of what Paul says. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I feel like that far too many Christians are looking for love and acceptance from God in all the wrong places. Are you like me in that you you have to, you know, step outside of this performance-based mindset sometimes? I feel like if I just did enough, God would be pleased with me. If I just work a little harder at this thing called Christianity, if I just try to be a more dedicated disciple, if I just, you know, come to church every time the doors are open, if I pray three times a day, if I read through my Bible in a year, then God will be pleased with me and he'll love me more, right? We look for it in theology. We look for it in religious activity. But here's what Paul would say to that. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You know, all the things that Paul mentions here are important, but they're worthless without love. Yes, you must follow God's commands. Yes, you should believe right things. Yes, you should do right things. Yes, you should put a premium on spiritual disciplines. But all these things are empty, null and void, without love. It all starts with the heart. A heart that is all in. Because a heart that beats for God will pump life into things like prayer and Bible study and worship. Those things are empty rituals without the relationship. A healthy heart promotes healthy habits. When my heart is in rhythm with God, it shows up in the rhythm of my life and it beats for right things. Do you remember the infomercials that featured this guy? This is Ron Papil. You remember that name? Ron Papil invented some uh, rotisserie oven or something. But more importantly, he invented probably the best tagline in infomercial history. Anybody know what it is? Neil, you remember it? Set it and forget it. Remember that? You just set it and forget it. That's how we want our heart to be, isn't it? Just set it and forget it. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Your heart is movable. It'll go wherever you want it to go. Jesus says, wherever your heart is, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is movable. And typically it moves with our money, our career, um, you know, our stuff, our love interests, whatever it may be. But like the thermostat in your house, you set your heart. And our heart has a default setting. For most of us, that default setting is not spiritual. It's not godly. Typically it's worldly, which means we can't just set it and forget it. We have to set it and keep resetting it and keep watching it and checking it constantly to make certain that it's always set to God mode. Or as the writer of Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So you don't set it and forget it. You keep setting it and resetting it 
to make sure that it's aligned with God and not you. Psalm 119, starting at verse 112, it reads, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. You want a healthy heart? Within this little section of scripture, you find three habits of a healthy heart. And they are hate, hide, and hope. Did you notice the psalmist says, I have inclined my heart? He understood that his heart was movable. He knew that he had to move it toward God. Set it on God mode. And don't forget it, but keep inclining it. Keep checking it. Keep making sure that it's set on the proper setting. He had control over his heart, and he chose to set it on God mode. His heart was leaning in a godly direction rather than a selfish direction. Then he jumps to what he hates and what he loves. I hate those who are double-minded, unstable, wafflers, flip-floppers, people not unlike me, and probably not unlike you, and probably not unlike the psalmist at times. Then he says, but I love your law. Before I can do what I love, I have to identify what I hate. Hate can be a powerful motivator for change. You must hate it before you can change it. And that's tough because I don't know about you, but many of the things that I love or at least like a lot are things that are not good for me. I love chocolate mini donuts. I love frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts. I love Cool Ranch Doritos. I love these things. I hate what they do to me. I may look like the picture of health. My father is probably more fit than I am, and he has had a 99% blockage of his left descending artery. He shouldn't be here today. So you can look good on the outside and be blocked on the inside. I can promise you I will not fall dead from running because I don't run. <laughs> However, if I continue to only eat things that are bad for me, it's not going to work out in the end. My blood type is going to be gravy, and that's not good. <laughs> I love things that are bad for me, and I'm sure all of us in here do to some degree. That's what makes it so difficult. I love the taste, but I hate the outcome. I have a love-hate relationship with anger. I feel better when I can vent when I can let it out, but it destroys me. I don't like who I am when I'm angry. I love the taste, but I hate the outcome. And it's this love-hate relationship that we have with so many things that makes it so difficult for us to overcome. But until you hate the outcome more than you love the taste, you'll never change. Remember when Absalom was in hot pursuit of King David? This is David's own son that is seeking out David to kill him. And when David learns of Absalom's death, David's men take care of the threat, and when David learns of Absalom's death, he weeps bitter, bitterly. That day of victory is quickly turned into a day of mourning. And Joab, the captain of David's army, is not happy one bit. Notice what it says in 2 Samuel 19, 5 and 6. Today you have shamed all your servants who have saved your life today and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. Love what hates you, hate what loves you. I've been there. Have you? 
We all have a love-hate relationship with something. We love the taste, but we hate the outcome. We know we shouldn't love it as much as we do, but we can't muster up enough hate to turn away from it. But until I hate it in my heart, I will never expel it from my life. Until you despise Egypt, you will always be tempted to return there. I hate racism. And because I hate it, I do everything within my power to rid my life of it. I hate racism with a passion, and my heart has no room for it. I hate it, therefore I rid my life of it. I hate being late. And because I hate being late, I'm always early everywhere. If I can't be at least 15 minutes early, my blood pressure starts going up, and I start getting really anxious. I hate procrastination. I work on sermons a year in advance just because I hate procrastination so much. Because I hate it, I do something about it. Until you hate the outcome, you will never change it. Secondly, notice the psalmist says, you are my hiding place and my shield. Do you know where to hide? Where do you go for protection? Because we all need a hiding place, don't we? We all need a refuge from the trials and the temptations of this world. So I ask you, where is your hiding place? Because here's what happens all too often. We run to the very enemy who is trying to kill us. Those of you who are ministers, you counsel with individuals who do this all the time. Maybe you've done it as well. All too often, it sounds silly, but it happens all the time. We run to alcohol, we run to pills, we run to pornography, we run to eating, we run to the enemy. And I know you know this, but you can't get protection from the enemy you're running to. You cannot hide in enemy-occupied territory. Like David, the prophet Elijah found himself on the run. He was running from that evil woman Jezebel, and he finds a cave to hide in. And God comes to him and basically says, what are you doing? Why are you in this cave? Get out. I'm going to take care of you. I'm your refuge. I'm your hiding place. God was going to keep him safe. Where is your hiding place? I would encourage you to designate it in advance. Discover it now. Don't wait until the pressure is on. Don't wait until you feel the trial and the temptation and you're in the middle of it. Find your hiding place now. Find your place of refuge now. Regularly run and hide now so that you'll be prepared for when the enemy is threatening. Go to God in prayer. Go to him in scripture study. Go to him in worship. Go to him in service. Notice verse 114 of Psalm 119 again. He says, I wait for your word. The psalmist has placed his hope in the only one who can rescue him. When the enemy presses in, the writer knows that he will be protected because his hiding place is in the Lord. So where is your hope? Are you waiting for his word? I moved to Dixon in November. I moved there in November. I've been in Abilene, Texas for 14 years at a church that I could retire at. Walnut Street called. I listened because it was close to my daughter who married a boy from Raymer, Tennessee, not far from Dixon. My middle daughter had ended up in our hometown, Paragould, Arkansas, where my dad and Libby's mom are still living. I thought, well, this sounds like a pretty good opportunity. So I took the job. We're driving up, my wife and I. We get to about Memphis, and this wave of emotion hit me. What have I done? 
get to Dixon, my wife is there for the weekend, then she goes back and she has been in Abilene and still is there until May the 4th. So I've been in Dixon from November until now, waiting for my wife to get there. I moved to Dixon in November. Now, Abilene, you gotta, you got to realize the temperature is always the same. There's no rain. It doesn't rain. It's 100 degrees every day. The wind blows 100 miles an hour. It's the same weather every day. I moved to Dixon. It's getting dark at 4.30. I don't think I saw the sun two times in November. I swore I'd moved to Russia. And I'm sitting in this house that the church owns because I don't have a house yet. I don't know anybody. I don't really have any friends yet. You know what's gotten me through the last five, six months? Hope. And of course now I'm two weeks away from seeing my wife full time and getting her there. That's the only thing that's gotten me through. What gets you through? What do you do while you wait? Where is your hope? Are you waiting for his word like the psalmist? Now here's the deal. God's words are here. He's already spoken. He has said that he is coming back. He has instructed us on what to do in the meantime. The question is, are you listening? 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, it reads, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever and Amen. Peter says the end of all things is near. And then he inserts a therefore, which I don't have to tell you means that whatever he is about to say is connected to what he just said. So the end of all things is near. Surely there's something that we need to do in order to prepare. And here's what Peter says to do. Don't panic. Stay calm. Don't be so touchy or stop whining and complaining and start doing. Don't lock your door. Be hospitable. And don't waste what God has given you. And you probably notice a commonality among all these things that Peter exhorts us exiles to do to prepare for Jesus' coming. Preparation is about doing. So you pray, you keep praying, you keep loving, you keep serving. In other words, you be Jesus until Jesus returns and finds you being Jesus. Don't just hunker down. Don't just sit back and do nothing. This is not wishful thinking. If it's cold outside, I don't wish that it won't be cold when I go outside. I put on a coat, right? I don't put my hope in my conditions or my circumstances. My hope is in the promise and the one who made the promise. So be active in your hope. He's given us his word, and we can take it to the bank. In the meantime, let's put our hope to work. Let's show how serious we are about this hope by living with it and sharing it with everyone that we come in contact with. Be Jesus until Jesus returns. So that he finds you being Jesus. I was in the airport not long ago. I was waiting for a flight that was going to take me from Salt Lake City back to Nashville. And I'm sitting in the airport and minding my own business, listening to a, a podcast, looking at my phone. And there are several other people in the terminal just like me. Some are sleeping, some are reading, but they're sitting there comfortably. There's another group in the terminal 
and they're pacing back and forth to the desk. They're visibly distraught. They're asking all sorts of questions. They are not relaxed. They are not comfortable. They could not be more on edge. And you know what the difference is between the two groups, the group I'm in and that group? I have a reserved seat on the plane. When, I, when I, we board that plane, I'm going to have a reserved seat and I'm going to make it to my destination barring anything unforeseen. The people who are going back and forth to the desk, they don't have that assurance. They wonder if they're ever going to get home. If you knew our Lord was going to return in the next 15 minutes, what would your demeanor be? What group would you be in? Would you, would you be sitting here comfortably saying, come on, bring it, I'm ready? Would you be pacing around, anxious, on edge, wondering if you had a reserve spot? I used to play a lot of video games when I was a kid, but in my day, so shows you how old I am, in my day, my friend and I would load our pockets down with quarters and we would ride our bikes a mile to Circus Circus, which was the arcade in Paragould, Arkansas. And those of you who don't know what an arcade is, there were these video games that were actually upright and you would go and you would insert quarters or you would exchange your quarters for tokens and you would insert them in the slot and you would play video games until you ran out of money. Then later on, video game consoles came out like Atari and Nintendo, so you paid the money on the front end, and you just wasted time then in sitting in front of your TV in your room or in the living room playing these video games. But there was a common theme among all these video games, and that is you started with lives, usually three. You have three lives, and these lives represented opportunities or chances to win the game, because that was the goal, right, to win the game to defeat the villain and to rescue the princess or whatever the goal was, you were trying to win. Sometimes you could earn more lives or opportunities if you completed certain levels or you know, did a bonus round or whatever, but typically you got three lives, and when those lives were over, the game was over. When you died the last time, you got to see these dreaded words on the screen. No gamer likes to see these words. So, if I saw the inevitable coming and I was about to lose that last life, you know what I would do? I'd quickly reset the, the game. So I didn't have to face my failure. I would quickly reset it and start over so that I didn't have to embrace failure. We all need a reset from time to time, don't we? Our heart gets out of rhythm. It begins beating for other things. And it's in these times that we need to do a hard reset and incline our hearts back to God. Remember, your heart is movable. Trust in him. Lean not on your own understanding. Do you need to do that this evening? Do you need to shock your heart back into rhythm? Don't put that off. Your spiritual cardiovascular health is too important. It affects everything else in your life. It all starts with a healthy heart. Folks, I've looked at the back of the Bible, and guess what? We win. 